Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Interesting comment from somebody who said, hey, Carol, you know, I really appreciate your show because you share the information that I need to know. So I want to know, why can't I get my wife to trust me. What is up with her constant fear that now that I'm in good recovery, I can't be honest? Well, there is no doubt in my mind that you're having some trouble being empathetic with her. I mean, her whole life has been a lie, and now you're in recovery, and you expect her to easily trust you? She should not be that stupid. She's got to see you walk your talk. And I do believe you can do that. But that means that you've got to do everything possible to build her trust. And that's my advice to you. Now, I have another email from a single guy. And he says, Carol, I am really having trouble holding myself accountable. I know what I should and should not be doing, and I keep giving in to my id. Now, for all of you that may not know, the id is the impulse part of the brain. I mean, it's not really a part of the brain, but in Freudian psychology, there was the ego, what you wanted, um, and knew that you probably should not participate in. The id, which were your impulses, everything you wanted without any sense of consciousness, and then the superego, which was like the parent, the parent inside of you that said, that's wrong, that's right, that's good, that's bad. And so this single guy is saying that he's having a hard time doing the next right thing. And I get that. This is the hardest addiction in the world to combat. And so if you're single and you're having to be accountable only to yourself, this is going to be a lot harder than if you had a family or a spouse. But what I do believe is true is that if you create a family of choice, a.k.a. a fellowship, and you're honest with them, they then help you to do the next right thing because they are wanting the best for you. And they get addiction, and they know how tough that is. And so it's really important if you're single and you don't have anybody to say help to hold you accountable or 
with so many of my addicts, you don't have anybody to be accountable for. And you have to develop a strong social network, a strong family of choice. And then, of course, holding yourself accountable to them, for them, with them will help you to make the next right choice. Now, tonight, I have a really um, a really great guest. She is the executive director and CEO of STAR. And when I was first getting my CSAT um, certification, that's my Certified Sexual Addictions Certification, I met several people from STAR, and it, that was a sexual trauma and recovery um, organization. And those people really seemed to have their stuff together. They had great programming. It was like I was learning about sexual addiction, and I knew that I didn't know anything. And they really problematically and um, structurally, they knew what addicts needed to get healthy. So Kara Tripodi is the executive director, and she's going to be talking about compulsive sexual problematic behaviors and the problems that causes in a relationship. She spent over 25 years educating, treating, and writing about problems related to sexual addiction, the digital perils of Internet porn and the impact it has on loved ones. So it'll be interesting to see what she says, because, you know, I've told you before, with my CSATs, my Certified Sexual Addictions Therapy Accreditation, we are supposed to be porn neutral. Because what we know to be true is that there are people that can look at porn And if we don't judge whether it's right or wrong, it's not really a problem for them. They use it. They don't. It's okay. It it helps their sexuality. It doesn't. Um, It's kind of a non-issue. And I thought that for a long, long time. I still do to some degree. But what I know now in um, the field of sexual addiction is that porn is a gateway for all sorts of unhealthy behaviors. It in itself can be unhealthy. And I'm sorry. I am not okay with objectification of anybody. It has never been okay for a group of women, in my eyes, to go to a a strip club and watch men um, prance around in their skivvies and, you know, do the... (laughs) do the dancing and, you know, they're talking bucks and they're screaming and they're, they're just acting a fool. And I remember going, I've been twice and I said, you know what, this is so not for me because this is not my libido. This is not what makes me happy. This feels silly and stupid and it just doesn't feel right that we're all screaming about men that are half naked. So I guess what I'm saying is that, hey, You know, what I know is that personally it never worked for me, and I do believe that for sex addicts it doesn't work for them. It either is the gateway to more or it keeps them wrapped up enough that they are unable to really focus on what matters. And that's their partners or their families or their kids or their jobs. You know, the things that we do every day that makes a difference in terms of our functioning and our livelihoods. So I can't wait to see what uh, Kara believes in regards to sexual addiction. She's a clinical social worker and psychotherapist, and she has built an amazing outpatient program that treats addicts by providing a comprehensive treatment center And it includes assessment, evaluation, individual, and group psychotherapy. It's amazing. She's also the author of Intimate Treason, Healing the Trauma for Partners Confronting Sexual Addiction. 
she's on or has been, let's see, she has been on the board for SASH, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, um, of which I'm going to be presenting a pre-conference and at the conference in October of 2019. And she helped develop the ATPSB, the Advanced Training and Problematic Behavior for Professionals in the Mental and Behavioral Health and Related Fields. Wow, this woman has made it her mission to help educate as well as treat. And I look so forward to hearing what she has to say about couples and families. Because let's face it, sex addiction is an individual issue. It's an individual recovery issue. And what I know to be true is that sex addiction also is a relational issue. And wow, relational means that it affects the coupleship and the family. And we really need to work diligently to help everybody in that family system heal from the aftermath of sexual addiction. Now, you and I both know that it is not easy. Nobody signed up for this club. Nobody signed up to be a sex addict, and nobody signed up to be a partner. And it's a club nobody wants to be in. But I promise you that if you work good recovery, it's a club that can actually grow you up, grow you better, and, and it's got a lot of personal development in it. Oftentimes, though, I meet with people who they kind of get bored with it. You know, they get complacent. They say, I don't know that I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I say, first of all, stay in the moment. When you stay in the moment, you don't think about the rest of your life. You think about today. And anybody can do anything today. Second of all, I believe it's each one of our personal responsibilities to decide how we can reframe something so that it doesn't feel cumbersome, it doesn't feel stale, it doesn't feel old, it feels exciting, it's filled with enthusiasm, and actually you learn how to enjoy it. You know, I've got a friend right now, and she probably has an alcohol dependency, but she decided, I'm going to give up alcohol for 30 days, and I'm going to see how I feel. And she didn't just say, okay, I'm going to white-knuckle it, I'm going to give it up, and I'm going to boo-hoo and be angry about it. She said, I'm going to make it fun. And so she started Googling, giving up alcohol, being alcohol sober, you know, all sorts of things, and she found this 30-day challenge. And so not only did she decide, okay, I'm giving it up for 30 days, but I'm going to enjoy my life to the best of my ability. And so she looked for fun drinks, and she looked for restaurants that served fun drinks, and she looked for a fellowship that that were positive about giving this up. They didn't moan and groan and and hate their life, they actually said, this is what's different. I'm clearer. I think better. I'm more productive. I'm working out more. And so she surrounded herself with an environment that promoted her change. And that's what Patrick Carnes talked about. He said, hey, you know, when you decide that you've had enough, you have to create a fellowship, a network that supports you, You have to go through the suffering and then make the decision that the fellowship, the committee, the support, the philosophy is way better than any way you've ever lived. You need to give back because that, of course, is the 12th step. Give it back because by this point, you've got what other people want and you need to help them figure out how to give it. And let's face it and get it. 
when you do that, you're always reminded of where you were and where you've been, and it gives you gratitude. And then he says, you know, when you do that, you've gone full circle from suffering to making a difference, and that's what life's all about. And he says every spiritual tradition, every philosophical belief system says that is how you get healthier. So here's your challenge for this week. I want you to think about something that has been hard or difficult, something that you have been moaning about, you're begrudging about it, you're, it's pulling you down, it's making you feel lethargic, and I want you to say, what can I do to put some energy into this so that it's not negative, it's actually a positive? And when you do that, you're reframing. And when you reframe, you take a picture, an obstacle, a difficult situation, you put a new frame on it, and you take yourself out of that victim role and you say, I know I can do this. I'm excited about it. This is what it's going to teach me. This is what I can learn from it. And um, it gives you energy to make it happen. And that is what is so important in recovery. Now, again, I'm really excited to be interviewing the executive director and CEO of START, Kara Tripodi is uh, an amazing clinician, 25 years in the field, and we got a little feedback there, but I think we'll probably get it worked out. So, Carol, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hello. How are you? I am fine, and I'm really very, very excited to be interviewing you because you are doing amazing things, not only around sex addiction, but around the coupleship and partner betrayal. And so you're, you're doing it full circle. And I wanted to hear about what you actually are doing. And you've been in the business for a long time and you've just done programming, you've written things. I mean, you have made a big difference in this field, so thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to sort of share and be part of this. And to, yeah, so, again... Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit. First of all, intimate treason, healing the trauma for partners confronting sexual addiction. What made you write that book, and how has it changed your philosophy? Um, So I was doing this work back in the early, uh, the mid-90s, and at that time there was no really helpful information that spoke to what I was seeing, and I was at that point mostly running groups and found that as I started to gain knowledge and experience, I felt like there was no real good guide available for partners to help them along the journey of kind of discovery or disclosure um, and kind of what to expect and what happens over those initial months and uh, first couple years. And so as I gained knowledge in doing the work with partners, I really started to feel I had a better understanding of what are some of the tools that help them in their their journey. And um, so I collaborated with uh, Claudia Black, um, and she and I worked together to write this book, and it came out in 2012, so already it's a bit... Uh, it's been a while since we wrote the book, and um, and I'm so thrilled that since that time there's been other books now that are out to help kind of partners. It, we really wanted to write it sort of like as a workbook um, because we really felt that we wanted to reach partners that were either seeking treatment or not um, because some people really will live with this very alone um, and need some tools to help them in that process. Yeah, you know, we've had Claudia Black on the show, and I've got to say that uh, she's an amazing 
amazing uh, clinician and author. And obviously, for some people, they may have heard Claudia Black from being, I call her kind of the godmother, grandmother of adult children of alcoholics. Yes. And so when she went into this field of partner betrayal at the Meadows, that was really, really exciting. So how did the two of you decide to collaborate together? So we knew each other uh, through the field from, you know, probably the late 90s, early 2000s. And we had a personal reason that we had kind of got in contact with each other. I was thinking of relocating to that area. and She lived to where she lives out in um, the Seattle area. And so we had a connection that way. And um, it was through that we started uh, developing a bit of a collaboration. And then she wanted to also kind of like me, kind of memorialize some of the work she had been doing up until that point at the Meadows. And we sort of kind of, it was sort of synchronistic that it worked for both of us to, you know, me with the long-term outpatient work. And at that point, she had been doing uh, weekend retreats with partners um, over a number of years. And so the two of us sort of put our heads together and came up with the book, which I think has been so rich. And we use it a lot in our program at STAR, so um, I think it's continued to be very useful and helpful to people um, seeking help with this problem. It's also been very helpful for addicts as well who or those struggling with problematic behavior because it gives them an understanding a bit of what the partner goes through. Um, so oh, that's yeah. a little bit how she and, and I got to work together, yeah. I tell my clients it's one of three Bibles. I mean, I truly believe, well, now there's four in actuality, if you ask me. Um, uh-huh. There was Stephanie Carnes, uh, Mending the Shattered mm-hmm. Heart, yeah. which was the Bible. Right. It was the first book. And That's then I do right. believe That's you right. two had the second mm-hmm. book. Um, right. Close to Barbara Stephens and Marsha Means, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse. Right. And then Sherry Keffer just wrote um, Intimate Deceptions. And that is another amazing book on partner betrayal. And and my oh. addicts read those books so they will better understand how their partners feel. So they really work on being partner sensitive. And, and I'm not sure if you realize, Kara, that I am part of AppSats, and I'm on their board, and I do their training, and it's really about helping helping the addict know how he can help the partner heal, and I know that you really believe in that. So tell me right. a little bit Definitely. about that philosophy and how you teach that at STAR. So one of the things that we do at STAR, Carol, is the fact that we're pretty kind of a multi-phase and a kind of a, um, a multi-phase approach to treatment, and and we treat the the addict or that person that has been identified as having um, out of control behaviors, as well as the partner. So we we sort of like to call it kind of like we sort of a holding environment for the coupleship, where we don't do a lot of direct couples work in the beginning, but what we do is they're both coming to the same place. Um, and they're often doing our psychoeducational program called Beginnings, where they get exposure to the same information at the same time, and then they go into, it's a three-hour group uh, per week over 10 weeks, and then they go into a small group for the second part of that group where they're with other people struggling with similar issues, whether they're a partner or the, the addict. And in that way, they are starting to just get acclimated to what the partner is going through, sometimes by hearing it from other partners. And um, both the addict and the partner get to hear the other person's perspective rather than just their own partner and hearing their story. Um, The other piece that we do is that we, you know, we'll do what we call conjoint or I call them more strategic sessions where we bring, we will have the the, the, the couple as well as the two therapists that are working with each of the parties 
come together for structured kinds of issues. So in the beginning, it might be things like, are we going to separate? Are we going to, you know, are we going to, you know, what is um, abstinence? Are we going to practice abstinence, et cetera? And then things like working on um, what I call more immediate concerns. Those would be some of those immediate concerns as well as kind of down the road and within usually the first six months to a year, we work on doing disclosure and we would do that conjointly. And then following the disclosure, they right away do a polygraph within usually the first week after disclosure. All of those kinds of steps are really keeping the couple connected, but focused on each of their individual um, pain and growth in that first six months or a year. Usually by that point, many couples are ready to start couples therapy and many couples are, you know, some of them are going towards separation um, or the relationship isn't, you know, um, viable at that point for other reasons. So, um, but, you know, usually we're working directly with uh, the addict to understand what the partner's going through, but we find that empathy development is very uh, challenging for addicts in the first couple years because they, we believe that they have to cultivate empathy for their own self and what they've done and what that looks like in their recovery. And, but that doesn't mean that right action isn't something that addicts can start to exhibit in the first, you know, months and year or two of recovery. So those yeah, are some that makes of the things sense. we do. Yeah. And so you've worked really hard to cultivate for sex addicts at the beginning of treatment that solid recovery program where you kind of break through the denial and help them to understand yes. their sexual addiction and begin uh, developing a program that supports them so that they can be sober and and feel good about themselves so they can do the relational work, correct? Right, right. And, and, and accountability is a huge piece of that. So having clear and definable expectations, um, you know, for if the, if the partner has needs around that, but also kind of what we expect and how we sort of spell that out for them. Um, again, recognizing that in an outpatient setting, you don't, you know, you don't have the kinds of, you know, leverage or control to help, you know, motivate an addict to, um, to make them ready to make changes. I mean, none of us can, but sometimes when you have a more structured setting, like inpatient, you can do a lot more confrontive or direct uh, work. Uh, so, but we do that as best we can in our way on an outpatient setting. And that really, models for the partner what they have a right to ask for and expect. Um, so, yeah. yeah so, the, so the educational, yeah. Yeah. So now tell me, you've been in this business for over 25 years. What are some of the long-term trends that you see in working with addicts and working with partners and working with couples? Well, one thing that's been interesting that you were saying in the introduction is having been, you know, now having been doing this work for so many years, I've actually am now working with the next generation. So the children of some of these uh, couples. And that's been a very interesting and eye-opening experience and process because many times when you're doing this work long-term, you're helping, you know, addicts and their partners recognize dynamics that they may have brought into their own relationships so and how they may have also been subjected or been you know children of you know sex addicts um, or you know being the child of a parent who cheated or had a lot of secrets or other types of addictions becomes a central part of longer term work whether I'm working with an addict or a partner and now seeing their children has just been uh, another unique but and rewarding and challenging uh, layer in this work that I've been doing. Um, so I just thought I'd add that because that's been, you know, now sort of multi-generational. It has been, you know, a new dimension in this work. 
Um, well, yeah, so what do you see with the kids? How are they being treated? What are they experiencing? And tell us a little bit about their resiliency. So usually what's been so rewarding is that some of these children are being raised in households where divorce was the outcome. And what I'm seeing is that the resilience is that they had at least a parent that got that entered and maintained their own um, personal growth and recovery process. And so even as, as the discovery or disclosure happened in that family or the crisis erupted and children were exposed to that, what they saw longer term is that one parent, sometimes both, but often it's for sure one parent that really responded to, um, you know, taking hold of their own, you know, uh, recovery process. And so you see, my experience has been adult children that have now have some understanding of, you know, they know how to talk about what happened. What I think has been a revealing piece for me is that it's almost like you can have all this knowledge, but if it's not been fully integrated emotionally, it can still make it that can be the work of the therapy, which is what brings some of these adult children in for treatment now, is that they have knowledge. They may not have as much knowledge, and they actually don't want to have a lot more knowledge of what happened. But what you see is the ramifications of what I would call sort of the intimacy ruptures or the attachment ruptures that may have happened in the coupleship, but also the rupture in the parenting that may have happened in those years. Um, where the crisis was going on or had been going on and was not known to the couple before they confronted this as a problem. So you see problems around dating, for example, or problems around, Mm -hmm. you know, um, intimacy in in those relationships. Um, You see, I see some issues around trust, Um, certain things that could be seen, you know, might be normal to many Uh, young adults, but are also through this lens of where there was betrayal or uh, other kinds of trauma that they may have witnessed by their parents' relationship uh, going through the crisis that it did. Well, it sounds like what you're also saying is that um, those byproducts of trust and intimacy for kids stems from the fact that their parents didn't necessarily stay together. So would you say that when working with sex addicts and betrayed partners that the couple typically does stay together, um, does not stay together, or is it pretty even? I think it's, you know, I think it's it's funny. I'm thinking about a current group I run now that I've been running for many, many years, and it's not that it's the same people, but we have seven people in that group right now. And it's, it's split. I think there's three where the marriages are thriving. And then there's, I think four that have ended, that have ended. Let me see if I have that right. One, two, um, three. Yeah. And, you know, um, so it's kind of split. Um, I think what happens is some of them might stay together in the first couple of years, but sometimes, they might still, it might still end. Like I'm thinking of this young adult woman that came to me, her parents were still married after 30 some years, but the father really never fully embraced recovery. And when she came back in to see me, uh, she'd been seeing me throughout her college years. And then she's now married and had her first child. The parents were, were breaking up. So, but I, I think it's split. I think there's a lot of couples that, that do fine meaning that they recover um, and grow. And there are, you know, I'd say there's a fair amount that don't. I mean, this is, um, for for many people, it seems to be uh, not always that that breaks up the coupleship. It's usually other personality issues that can come up or some people that just can't fully embrace the recovery process. and yeah, I get that. Yeah. So let me ask yeah. you, what changes do you notice for the partner long term? 
I mean, what do you see for partners? So one of the biggest things is that not all partners heal the same way in the same manner. And I've, that, that's something that I've had to really come to terms with in a lot of ways that, you know, I sort of have this vision of how it should go for somebody, but that's not always how, you know, it goes. But one of the things is they all seem to have their own sort of their their own definition of kind of resilience um, where there's sort of that post-traumatic growth uh, for them where they seem to find they make positive meaning out of their circumstances. Um, That's often, you know, when I think about some of the longer term partners, you know, I think it's finding their way through their difficulties in their relationship but also looking at their own difficulties in themselves that are separate from their relationships, so their own personality struggles, their own family of origin patterns, for example. For some of them, it comes out in the way they struggle with parenting, not just how they were parented, um, but starting to recognize some of them end up having children that have you know, mental health and or addiction concerns and how they address that. You know, other long-term issues that I see is their their ability to form attachments are different, that they really, even if they, you know, if their relationship thrives, they're able to cultivate a a, uh, bond that's very different than the one they had prior to the discovery and disclosure. There's a lot more authenticity on both parties' part, they are less, um, you know, and again, I'm talking, you know, three years sometimes down the road where triggers are not so readily occurring and they're able to resolve their triggers more on their own without the level of support they may have needed in the first couple years um, would be one example. I see, a, you know, so whereas I always say to clients, you know, in the beginning, a couple years, rely on me, rely on my thinking, because we're going to help you get your thinking and your feelings more um, reliable for you so that you're not feeling so inconsistent as a response to things. And then what that happens for them is they start to trust themselves more and they're less reliant on what I might think or what I might you know, say to them, um, they they are able to trust themselves more. I guess that's the better way to put it is that their ability to know themselves um, in a in a much deeper way has increased tremendously. Um, now there are there are plenty of partners. When I think about some of the partners who've stayed with me really long term, I'm talking more than you know three years, sometimes five years plus. Um, Some of them, you know, have other underlying issues that were always present, but the addiction of their partner brought it more to the fore. So things like trust or betrayal uh, were maybe dominant themes in their upbringing that they never realized, um, but it started to make sense to them to look at those themes once the crisis of their relationship settled down or they, that, re, that crisis, that relationship had resolved, whether they had stayed in it or not. But they started to see tentacles of that in other areas of their life, life like parenting or relationships with other members of their family, um, other areas around you know, career choices. Should they go back to having a career? Should they change their career? Um, so it, I think the, often the betrayal is a catalyst for them finding their, their, their voices in other areas of their life, although not usually in the first couple of years because this takes up so much energy and is so much focus and there's so much healing that has to go on in those early years. Oh, yeah, there is no doubt that this is the worst form of betrayal ever. And, you know, maybe it's because I really advocate for couples 
trying to work this out and develop the skills they need. I, I don't know, but I know that addicts so oftentimes don't know how to use relational skills. They don't have empathy. And so one yeah. of the things that I do is really help them to develop communication and empathy skills because that is what the partner wants. Um, yes, definitely. So I'm going to ask you, um, you speak a lot about the power of narrative a lot in their healing in your book, Intimate yeah. Treason. And, and I'm so interested in narratives and how they're used, whether it's David White or um, just lots and lots of people do narratives. So tell me how you use that and tell me about what you talk about in Intimate Treason. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in narrative, what I mean by the narrative is often in the form of being in a group. And for many people that um, attend 12-step uh, community for partners. And what I mean by that is the narrative is owning their story and owning their, the, the meaning that that story has for them. And the powerful piece that I've witnessed is how that narrative transforms over time. So when they come into a group and they introduce themselves, we will often have each person go around. It was funny. We used to just say, okay, take a few minutes, share your story. Now we take a few months for everybody to share their story because when somebody new comes in, every, they get as much time as they need. So if that takes, you know, 20 minutes, half hour, um, then that's what we do. And then the next person might share their story at different weeks. And so we can allot time for other issues, current issues in the group. But one of the things often partners will say is, oh, my gosh, I don't want to share my story. And Or if I say we have a new member joining the group, they'll be like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to hear the stories. I don't want to say the stories because it brings up so much pain. And yet each person will comment. They'll be witness to each other's story over time where they'll be able to say, you know, Hey, Lisa, you know, I remember when I first came in this group and I used to hear your, you told your story. And now when I hear your story a year later, I can't believe how much, you know, you've changed. I can't believe what you've included in that story, what you didn't include last time and what you include now. Like it's becomes this sort of, you know, evolving, um, unfolding of their healing process that ha- brings a lot of meaning to them where the story in the beginning can often be about, well, here's the crisis and here it happened, here's how it unfolded, and they'll have it down to microscopic detail. Now, that's for those that are able to, are very comfortable with articulating and spelling out and speaking your story. Some people, because of their own uh, personality or maybe their own past, saying a story can bring up tremendous anxiety because of their inability to to have maybe never been heard in their past. And so that process of unfolding is really tremendous to watch as well. But that the overall ways in which that changes and this is what he did to me to here's my journey, here's my story, and I own it. Meaning these things happen to me, but they don't no longer define me. So it's all of those things that I see that really create a lot of value for the member that the person who's doing this, as well as for those that are hearing the stories. So it's more of kind of like a, over time, the power of narrative that I was referring to in that, um, in the meaning of narrative. Okay. And, you know, in, in regards to that narrative, um, I, I so oftentimes when I've been working with partners for a while and they're doing really good work and you know, Kara, it is just like they are more, um, they've read more than we have. They are more yeah. um, in tune with what is out there. They bring me information that I didn't know. And I find myself mm-hmm. to be fairly worldly and I work hard on yeah, keeping yeah. up. Right. And at some point I have to say to them, Hey guys, I know that A, you're doing this to understand things and B, you're doing this to protect yourself and you have every right to want to protect yourself. But I'm going to ask you 
to slow down on your therapy sessions with me, or I'm going to ask yeah. you to to cut back on one or two meetings a week because mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want them to have that identity of I'm a partner of a sex addict or my okay. husband has compulsive sexual problematic behavior. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you're saying, too, that that definition mm-hmm. after a period of time really limits their potential and also how they see the world. Right. And, you know, speaking of that, I, I completely agree. And that's, you know, that's often what I've, you know, I think of a, a person who started with me not so long ago and had kept bringing in a number of different things. And I think it's also relationally a way they're trying to be seen and heard in the therapy. And it's also a trust with me, right, in that sense. So I'm always looking at it as what's that meaning for them? And because they're trying to say, are you going to be able to hear me? Are you going to be able to take care of me around these issues? And I find usually people when they, that, that kind of, I, I will also do the same. I'll say, okay, no self-help books. I want you to go out and get a couple of magazines. I want you to read for, for enjoyment you know, or and I and I might do those kinds of things as well, um, because I think it's it becomes a distraction sometimes, and it's also kind of a it's feeding some of that anxiety. Like I got to get ahead of this because I was so caught off guard in the past. So that tension for them is really very important to um, you know bring into the session as well, so we can try to work through some of that. The other piece, though, that you said is kind of the the labeling. And one of the things that I was always struck by is this this tension that exists, has existed historically in the field between what's codependency and what's trauma-related. And one of the pieces that, for me, happened a lot is partners – we're identifying with that. Now, if we, we look at some of the hit early history of it, it, it really was no literature in this field, except for there was a chapter in a Patrick Carnes book called Don't Call It Love. And it used the um, characteristics of codependency to help in understanding and treating partners. But I personally found as I was sitting with partners in those early years, and I would look at that chapter, I'd say, I like scratch my head and say, this, ain't, this isn't working, you know, because they're not relating to that. And it doesn't make sense to me. And part of the reason it didn't make sense to me is I, at least at the time, I was also doing medical uh, social work in an ICU and with children. And I just remember thinking, this is so similar to when partners show up in a crisis in the sense, it's like a medical crisis. Like they were, they've been blindsided. They have no idea what's going on. And they show up in your office saying, help me. I, what do I do? I mean, and I can only imagine, just like I would imagine in the ICU, there's no way. I would say to somebody, well, listen, you're really codependent. And the way you're taking care of your child in ICU is, <laughs> is a problem. Any more than I would say that to a partner. And so, and, and so in the beginning, it was really this kind of conundrum, like, okay, well, how do you help partners? And I just felt very helped by the medical um, uh, crisis work that I was doing. It helped inform me more than anything else I was reading in the field at that point um, because it helped me understand that in an acute crisis, you help people deal with the acute issues. So you do a lot of safety and and self-care and immediate needs. They need to hear from professionals. They need guidance. They need answers. They need to know what the questions should be. And it was in that that I started to turn to understanding, you know, much more post-traumatic, you know, stress disorder and trauma-related field, et cetera. But um, that being said, that's all great and useful in the beginning, but partners also had their own other issues to look at. And they came and started to say, well, I have this issue with codependency, and I would say to them, well, what does that mean to you, codependency? So rather than it's coming from like the therapist, oh, you are codependent, they were coming in a lot. And they were hearing this a lot in their 12-step meetings. A lot of them were going to ACOA. They were going to other 12 steps. 
they were going to Al-Anon because there wasn't a lot of Essanon here. And in that way, it started to, it started to make some sense to them. And that's still what I see a lot, that a lot of them self-identify. But what I help them with and what I feel very strongly about is it, what area of your life where you feel you have codependent um, concerns or traits rather than I'm a codependent. So it, it became more of like owning aspects of your personality that you want to change rather than this full-on out label. So anyways, I, I digressed a bit, but it was piggybacking a little bit on what you were just saying around the labels and how they don't want certain labels. And yet I was finding the opposite where they were also taking on labels that I found like wasn't, had some meaning, but wasn't the full definition, if that makes sense. Um, oh, 100%. That definitely yeah. makes sense. Now, do you do any of the intimate um Betrayal workshops at the Meadows? No, that the that I don't. No, no. I think okay. that I knew that Claudia yeah. did, but I didn't know if you Claudia yes. with that. Or... We did. Yes, yes, we did some discussion around it at the time, and um, it's very complimentary to the work she and I have done. Um, and yeah, I think it's. I'm, I'm thrilled they're doing it. Because I think it's really well, rich material, and it, it helps people understand these dynamics better. Well, absolutely. And it, the reason I asked is that I know that um, you just brought it up when you talked about codependency. And, and certainly some of the Meadows work, they talk about um, addressing codependency. And, and I don't know, when I'm talking partner betrayal, I don't necessarily label the partners codependent. I don't see them as a co-addict. Yeah. I think they've been totally duped. Now, could they be codependent like any woman could be codependent because we have a tendency to be codependent in general? Yes, absolutely. And did they witness that in their family? Oh, probably so. But it's not an automatic label. So can you share with me just a few of those complexities found in that term, codependency? So what, what I, I'm broader than that. So what I look at is usually these are partners who on some level in some area and sometimes many areas of their life, they were not able to activate self-care in, in, in their relationships. So what I do is I look at things like, okay, you, you didn't know about the addiction, let's say. It was kept hidden from you, and that's usually the way this goes, that there, these are secrets and you're not meant to know these kinds of things. Um, however, usually in my experience, there's been glimpses of something so it could be things like they were tolerating other, um, um, how do I want to say, they were being taken advantage of in some other areas in the relationship. So it could have been around parenting. They were the more primary caregiver. And even though they might say, oh, well, I wanted to do it that way, there were subtleties around the other person being more absent. And in the absence is often where the addiction was because if they were more absent, then they were also perhaps not at home a lot, um, or they were stealing time away in other ways to get their needs met, kind of the attic. Further, you would have areas where they were giving a lot of, the partner may have been very permissive around other areas of relationship like work and not having enough say around boundaries around the work and the impact the work was having on their life and their family's life. So one of the things that I see is that how is it that they became tolerant to those types of patterns in the relationship? So again, this I would never do in the beginning in my work with partners. I'm just telling you themes that happen in the beginning. It's so much about the crisis, the trauma, the betrayal, accountability, and having and, and watching and waiting if they can over the next year to see if the the addict or the person who's betrayed them is capable and able consistently to um, do 
do recovery practices, and that includes usually inpatient, I'm sorry, sometimes inpatient, but outpatient uh, therapy, being in a, in a 12-step group, uh, getting a sponsor, those kinds of things, but having accountability that is clear and explicit. Usually what you see in partners, in my experience, is you might see other dynamics that emerge that are true about the partner that existed prior to we all show up with our histories when we enter, you know, psychotherapy, however it is we enter into psychotherapy. So that is true for a partner. And usually they come with their own histories that have been perhaps invalidating environments in their household growing up, everything from you know, uh, um, neglect to uh, abuse, uh, sexual or um, physical or emotional, some or all of that. And it's those themes where you see, it's in those, in that history that you, that other uncovering for the partner occurs. So they start to ask, you know, how did I end up in a relationship that was so invalidating for me? You know, how did I end up with somebody that would, would have, treated me this way, not that I'm responsible for his or her behavior, but I'm here and I'm now having to face these things. What are some of, what, what are some of those things from my past that have influenced that? So sometimes that can be, for them, they identify as, you know, I have codependency. But for, for others, it's just recognizing dynamics from their past that have influenced some of their choice-making in the present. So that's how God, I would frame it. Yeah, rather than, you know, well, you're codependent and that's really been your problem all along. But I got to tell you, when they come in, they're often saying that to me. So then I'm like, okay, well, let's break this up. You know, um, I've seen a big shift. I don't, you know, I'd be very curious about this, but I've seen a number of partners find less support in the S programs and more support in um, adult children of alcoholic meetings and codependency meetings. That seems to be speaking to a lot more partners, and I've noticed this over probably the last, I'd say the last year or two. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's regional to me. I don't know if there's something different that's been going on in 12-step Essendon community here or the COSLA, or maybe those people aren't coming to me. I don't know, um, but I've seen a trend in that direction. Um, so... I think that's been useful for some. But, again, I think it's for the partner that's maybe more resolved about what's brought them here. They don't want the label of, you know, I'm a partner of a sex addict. So they want something, but they know they're in pain and they know they have other things they want to look at about themselves. So I think that they tend to gravitate into, in, in, in that, into those 12 steps because they still find it valuable to get that support um, but they feel that it almost speaks to some of their loneliness that they had prior to their relationships. Yeah, that's so that's totally more anecdotal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like we've already run out of time, and obviously oh, you have amazing oh. expertise uh, in this area. I hope we can interview you again. I so appreciate the work you're doing with partners because it really does help the coupleship. I love that you're working with families. It's such an underserved population. Keep us abreast of what you're doing, would you? Will do, will do. And I want to thank you for the work you're doing. It's, it's so impressive. I can only imagine how many people you're reaching just by doing these podcasts. Um, there's, there's, we're so blessed to have that in our lives at this point. Um, and it's such a useful tool. It's another tool that I think is available now to partners that wasn't there before. So I thank you for your work. Well, you're so right. I have to tell you, when I started this, after about three months, it turned into 56% of my demographics were women. And I knew they weren't women sex addicts. They were women trying to understand the issue of compulsive problematic sexual behavior. Yes. So, Kara, okay. thank you again. You take care, and uh, let's keep thank in touch. Thank you. Okay, we'll All do. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, that was Kara Hippity, and she is um, just an amazing 
author and speaker and program director, and she runs STAR. She's the executive director and CEO of Sexual Trauma and Recovery. Hey, this is the end of the show, as I say every week. There'll only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week.